Go Loud presents Magnified with Matt Cooper. Sponsored by Strategic Power Connect. Renewable energy designed to suit your business needs. Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect. Go Loud. Sounds better with us. Hello and thank you for joining me again on Magnified with Matt Cooper, the podcast series where I get the opportunity to interview really interesting people at my kitchen table in a bit more length than would normally be available on The Last Word at Today FM. And we do it in connection with Strategic Power Connects. So thank you to it for providing the opportunity. Now, the reason I went for Bernard Jackman as our guest today is that he has become very well known to you as an absolutely excellent rugby commentator and analyst. He's one of the very best that there is. But he also has a really interesting new job, aiming for Olympic success, not in rugby, but in the equestrian area. Can you imagine that? A man who, of course, comes from a farming background, but has spent his entire adult life in professional sport and rugby, suddenly adding his expertise to our equestrian efforts at the forthcoming Olympic Games. He's very interesting on that and also on the trips he took after finishing professional rugby. I hope you enjoy Bernard Jack. Bernard Jackman, you're the second rugby hooker to feature on Magnified. Uh, the first one was Frankie Sheehan, and I know various other hookers like Keith Woods, and then you have people on the telly like Jerry Flannery. Are all hookers good talkers? It seems to be. We've all um, uh, managed to, to find our way into the media. James Tracy's the latest uh, Hooker off the off the rank. Um, he's doing some work at Premier Sport and, and, and off the ball. Um, a lot of hookers become coaches. Um, so you know Warren Gatland, Eddie Jones, um, uh, Rafael Ibanez. Uh, yeah, I think we're obviously not shy. Normally we're the uh, the captain of the scrum as such. Um, and in the old days, used to call the line out. It's not anymore. Um, Normally we're a little bit more mobile than the props. Uh, well, we're supposed to be anyway. Uh, so we're probably hit more breakdowns and um, more involved. The back of the line out, you're kind of defensive. You have a defensive role. So yeah. So you're talking a lot. Talking a lot more than maybe um, the second rows are, are props. Uh, and also normally we're feisty enough and have opinions um, about the game or about life. So uh, we tend to hey, doggy, we tend to um, we tend to get uh, a little bit more higher profile maybe afterwards. The other thing that strikes me about the mentality that you might need to be a hooker is taking lineouts. Now, I know it's a while since you've played, but you've coached as well extensively. And having that ability, almost like in darts, to actually to calm yourself after been running around at full speed and with all the noise that's going on in a big game, to be actually able to throw accurately. How underestimated do you think is that as a skill by those in rugby who aren't hookers? Yeah, it's it's something I struggled with for my whole career. Um, I remember um, Neil Francis, the former Irish second row, uh, used to have a column in the Sunday Tribune. And you're told as a rugby player not to read the newspaper. But uh, anyway, I thought he played okay one day for Leinster against Munster. So I went in, down to the shop and bought the Sunday Tribune and took it home, had my coffee and was ready to read about how good I was. So I scrolled through, very vain, I scrolled through, through quickly the uh, the article from my name, saw it in the third paragraph and um, it said, uh, uh, Bernard Jackman is so inaccurate, if he fell off a boat, he wouldn't hit water. Right? So <laughs> as only uh, as only Frano could, could put it... Um, 
and uh, yeah, I, I struggled with it massively. Probably it held me back, to be honest. Uh, I, I was a late, I, I started off in school as a flanker, I converted into hooker. Um, and it was just something I, no matter how much I worked at, I couldn't really master to the level of a, of a, of a Jerry Flannery or a, or a Dan Sheen. Um, but I was okay at the rest of the game. So I got picked, you know, I, I didn't, didn't really affect my career. Maybe affected my career in terms of Irish caps or whatever, but didn't affect my ability to get picked a lot. And uh, there was a mental hang-up about it. I remember sometimes, you know, a ball would be kicked um, in behind and, and you know, or, or, or one of our kickers would be kicking for touch and sometimes you'd miss, nearly wish they missed touch, not to have that pressure five-metre line-out, you know. So um, I was only really at the end of my career I started to get a little bit better around breeding techniques and visualisation and things like that to to be a little bit more comfortable, but I never really mastered it, um, that balance. And I, I admire players who can go from whatever, heart rate 160 beats per minute to being on your own goal line, having a pressure throw and being able to execute it. So um, it was the only part of the game I found hard. Like I, I never found rugby hard in any way. And how uh, hard did you work at it then? Yeah, I worked a lot of it. I worked, worked with uh, Enda McNulty uh, at the end, and that's probably when I got... Um, a little a better at it or a little bit more consistent um, and being able to I suppose leave behind a bad throw because I suppose I, I often if I had a bad throw and sometimes a bad throw actually the throw mightn't have been bad which it often was for me but in certain matches it wasn't bad it was just a bad it was a bad call a good read defensively and suddenly then you're thinking in your mind Jesus we've lost two out of three if I lose another one you know will I get the shepherd's hook and and um, yeah, and that, that's not a good place to, to be in the middle of a game. So I probably got better at actually dealing with and leaving the past throws behind. Um, and yeah, having a routine, trying to um, do the same thing every time, trying to get your breathing down and, and to, to throw. But uh, it was certainly the only area of the game, which sounded like, like I never was nervous about playing rugby, uh, except that one little part. Enda McNulty did a magnified here yeah, at the kitchen table for me as well. How important is it in top class sport to realise that athletes who maybe have always been the best in their team as their young fellas coming up and who are marked out, that when they get to that elite level, that it can actually become harder for them mentally, even if they have most of the physical capabilities? Yeah, I think it's massive because effectively they're not they're, your sheer talent or your or your size or your toughness or your speed will get you to the top but then they also have to be able to deal with non-selection and competition and um wondering does the coach really believe in you etc but i think some like i think with sports psychology um it's a really useful tool but it has to be for me on an individual basis that the individual wants it. Um, I'm not a great believer, and I tapped into it and it was very beneficial for me. But I'm not a great believer in class ses- classroom sessions where you know everybody is treated um, as if they, they they may need help. Some people are have already created that through their childhood or their natural disposition towards being mentally tough, and for them it could actually take them away from what they're good at. I think it's a it's a great resource to have. You tap into it if you need it um, in a personal way, in an individual basis, and I think it's a great tool for that. Uh, but I think the cast to come from the player first. The player needs to to actually admit that they they could do it a little bit of extra help and speaking to I did something with Gary Keegan there a couple of weeks ago who is the head of performance for the Irish rugby team and his role is he does a little bit every week with the group but that's around mindset for that week but his role is to be around the hotel to be around the facility to have that coffee to have that little chat with people if they 
if they want to just double check on on something for the weekend. That just strikes me as interesting that at the moment, many workplaces, people are working remotely now. But it seems that the best comes out of rugby teams, not just the group. It's the ability to have those conversations away from the group might be where people actually pick up the things or gain the confidence that they actually need. Would it? Yeah, I, th- I think that's... Um it's a big strength of, of, of rugby, and I've worked with some GA teams. Obviously, I'm working on a horse in, in in the show jumping and the eventing game at the moment. But it's that ability to get everyone in a room, have really robust conversations, but then break out into smaller groups and and try and find a solution, and maybe come back or to do individual work. And I suppose we're lucky for rugby teams. You're you're together. You're uh, for a lot of the time. Where obviously GA teams aren't. But it's that level of trust to be able to and it's all you know you hear Andy Farrell talk about that ability to be yourself um, has taken it to a new level I think uh, that four or five years ago that wasn't really the the culture um, in rugby teams there was a bit of a uh, an element of machoism and a leader has to be out in front you know uh, pushing 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 whereas I think um, the, 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 the word of psychological safety I think Farrell whether he's meant to do it or not has has really laid that down as the foundation stone that people can go into camp and, and be themselves and um i remember uh, listening to johnny sexton talk about the joe schmidt era and joe schmidt was a phenomenal coach and he's probably been um uh, probably hasn't been recognized what he did for Irish rugby and i think it was easier for Farrell to come in after him because the foundations are were laid and a lot of the technical tactical stuff that we're doing now was laid but uh, was started by joe but Johnny, as a person, was saying that he, the way he was brought up, he liked to be told between the eyes what he needs to do better, okay? And so the example he gave was that if they're going to Carton House, which is the Irish training facility, and had to be in on Sunday night at 8 o'clock, his bag would be packed at 10 o'clock in the morning, and all he wanted to do was get into camp, and he'd drive up the driveway, um, you know, excited to get in there to, to, be, to be told how to get better, right? And but his his learning was after the after the 2019 World Cup, when obviously things went went badly, and there was a review that some players were getting to the gates and didn't want to go in. You know, which for to, for an Irish team to play for your country, that's that's um, that's hard to believe. But like we're all human at the end of the day, and if 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 we don't like being managed in that way, um, we're going to have a natural reaction against that. And um, yeah, it's fascinating uh, uh, that even within a team of rugby players who you think should all be quite similar, um, we're all so different um, in how we like to be spoken to and act. You're becoming a double act with Johnny Saxon these uh, days, well, are you? Look, <laughs> we were in the fight last week. Uh, I'm very lucky. Uh, I, I played with Johnny and... Um, we have a good we have a good friendship, um, so we've done a few uh, dinners together, and I ask the questions, but I try not to ask too many because um, people are there to listen to him, and uh, he's very good. He's he's uh, and he's even better now. He's retired because I think when he played, even though he was still great value, he was always conscious of a quote that could backfire on the team. Whereas now he's just he's he's totally free to to give his honest opinion. It's funny, actually, a couple of weeks ago, I was doing an event with Paul O'Connell down in Limerick, so I decided to ask him who was the best out-half he ever played with, Johnny Sexton or Ronan <laughs> O'Gara, uh, to which he absolutely refused to answer yeah. on the basis that if he plumped for one over the other, the other would be ringing him up. So why were you saying that? <laughs> when you look at Paul, Paul's on, uh, we've, lots of us have fallen into that trap where we have made a statement. Um, yeah, look, they're, they're both phenomenal. 
the buffer <laughs> there's no point someone getting in a row about it you know? um, given that you are doing work with him and I don't think this is necessarily unfair to ask you but has he asked you about like what it's like to retire from rugby and to adjust to not having that thing where it is your life because it does strike us that he has been such an intense figure over his career that this is going to be an adjustment that others have perhaps struggled to make at times. Yeah, I think we had a good chat about it in Dubai. Johnny's, all those fellas, I remember, um, uh, well, I know Simon Kyo, who's the head of Rugby Players Ireland, uh, he said to me that the two players that kind of pressed him the most in the last year and a half of their career for advice, for help, for reassurance were Paul O'Connell and Brian O'Driscoll, right? And I would say they were the two players of my generation and probably add Raj to that, who you would have said were the most set up, you know, they were the biggest brands, the most successful. And yes, I think it's an insight into their mindset that they were planning for the next step. And Johnny, Johnny is, is of similar ilk in that, you know, he, he already has an arrangement to go into work. He's been with our dad last and he's been doing that for, he's been doing a day a week when he can for the last two years. Um, and, and again, I think that those players, of course, it's difficult. It's difficult to readjust and not have the buzz of playing in front of 82,000 people in Stade de France in a World Cup quarterfinal. Um, I'm not having a, 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 a clear goal to chase, whether it's Champions Cup or, or Six Nations or whatever. But I think I think my advice to him was and, and uh, is to be busy. You know, I think be busy and do the things that you want and try and try and find something that will go as close as possible to replicating what you can do as a player because. To be honest, it's very difficult to... It's next to impossible to find that. That buzz of being with 30 of your friends trying to win something that's really hard to win. Um, whereas if you go into a big corporation, of course you can be successful, but it's very difficult to actually be able to say, I I had a massive key role in, in, in that, you know? Um, uh, look, at that, and so obviously some people do, but I think that's the that's the thing for me is to do things that you you're passionate about uh, with people that you're uh, that you respect um, and stay busy. You know, I think staying at home. Um, he wouldn't do it anyway, but yeah, staying at home and, and having too much time to think about it can be, for me, in my opinion, uh, makes it tougher. I am fascinated by that though because one of the reasons why I've asked you to join me is is because having met you recently at a charity event and seeing what a brilliant communicator you are and noticing how you have developed different skills since you start finished playing you went to coaching you had a career in coaching you've come out of coaching and I want to talk to you about the equestrian stuff you've become very well known as an antique uh, commentator and analyst and you write for the Sunday Independent so clearly you believe in keeping highly active and you've carved out new things for yourself. So using rugby as a base, but not letting being a player define you. Yeah, and I never thought I was going to be a professional rugby player. So I was quite lucky. So I was the first generation of rugby players to get a contract in Ireland. Um, people may forget that the RFU actually voted against professional rugby. And I was in the middle of a, a degree in DCU um, in international marketing in Japanese. So uh, my dad's a cattle leader. Uh, I'll, I'll explain my, my thought process here. So my dad's a cattle leader. I'm the eldest of five. Um, there's an expectation still for me to go home and, and take over, right? Uh, and I was actually buying cows a couple of weeks ago down in Carnew Mart. But uh, my dad kind of wanted me to come home. I probably thought I was going to come home, um, but I saw all my friends going off to college. And I was like, I'm going to be home a long time if I go home at 18. So I needed to be creative. If I had said I was going to do an arts degree or a journalism degree or 
he would have laughed at me, right? So I basically picked a new degree in DCU called International Marketing in Japanese. Like, I, I barely speak English, right? So uh, I, it was a big ask. But my, I went down to see him on Sunday. I got home from school. And um, I said to him, I want to go to college. And he said, oh, why would you go up there? And I said, well, look, at, um, I'm going to do International Marketing in Japanese. He said, why the F would you do that? And I said, I'm going to sell beef to the Japanese for you, right? So... I got a, a pass for four years. I did that for two years. Then rugby went professional and Warren Gatland got, gave me a contract to go to Connacht. And I, I transferred into business studies because uh, Gatland convinced me that if I went to Japan, I'd be forgotten about. But yet yeah, education was important. Um, so then I got, was a professional rugby player for 14 years. But I always knew it wasn't my life. You know, I always knew I wanted to do other things. So like when I was playing for Connacht, I started writing a column for the Carlin Nationalists, you know, every every week, or these small little 600 words. But that got me into that. Then I obviously had an autobiography when I retired. Um, I started to do radio. Uh, wherever anyone asked me to do it, I went in and did the Sunday paper review and off the ball and things like that. Did match uh, co-coms and, and just, it just built. Like I, I don't have a... I didn't have any plan. Um, I just made myself available if people asked me to do stuff. Uh, and now, from a media point of view, like I went down about a month ago to speak to a bunch of journalists in UL who are look, who are getting guest speakers every week to try and help them. Um, and I told them my story, but I don't think anyone can replicate it because there was no real logic to it. You know, I just took opportunities when, when they were there. Um, and, like, and I'm across all aspects, really. If you think about it, I do TV, um, and in TV, I do studio sometimes, I do pitch site, um, I do co-com, uh, and then and I do a po the podcast, two podcasts a week, and I have a, a written column. So I'm a kind of across all aspects of, 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 of rugby media, but I don't really have any preference for any of them. I just... I just uh, I just love them all, yeah. And um, sometimes but the hardest one is obviously the, the column, you know what I mean? Because it's often an opinion piece, and you know if by Friday you haven't nailed that, <laughs> the pressure comes on. Uh, and often I might start on a Tuesday, ring my editor John Green and say, "Look, I have this idea," and start tipping away at it all week, and then by Thursday realize it's crap. You know, so uh, that's the hardest part. The rest of it is is relatively easy because I'm so lucky that I do so many games. I don't need to do any homework and it's also my passion. So I'm actively always looking to learn about rugby. So when I do against the head on a Monday, I don't have to do any cramming. It's just it's just what I know. Uh, whereas obviously the, the hardest part is the, is the Sindo column where I have to basically write an opinion piece and try and make sure it's, 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 um, it's logical and, and thought out. Come back to me about your dad because if he was wondering about you taking four years to go to college, how did he feel about you becoming a professional he, rugby player? He, he couldn't believe I, I was t choosing that over um, over cattle dealing. And uh, every time I signed a contract, because I, I had a load of one-year contracts, which might have been all my choice, but effectively I would have to say to him, look, at, I'm not going to be home for another year. And then we kind of had a deal that I would come home when I retired uh, from playing, which was 2010. And then I got a chance to go to France, to Grenoble, and then... Um, he doesn't have a clue about rugby, like, or he doesn't have a clue about any sport. Uh, he's like he's my hero. Like I love him to bits, but uh, he he's just absolutely obsessed about cattle, land, uh, grass grown, price of diesel because we've lorries, um, and uh, just I went to a place called Grenoble, which isn't obviously well known, but. Anyway, I went down to him and said, look at that, I want to go to Grenoble for a year. And he said, why would you go there? And I said, oh, it'd be good for the kids, my, his grandchildren, to learn French. So we went for a year, ended up staying for five. But um, that first year, I, rang, I used to ring him every week. Uh, and 
I remember one day he said to me, oh, what's the name of that place you're in again? I said, Grenoble. And he drives a lorry, so I had him on the hands-free. And uh, he said, um, oh, Pat Fox, who would be a neighbour of ours, not the Tipperary hurler. Uh, Pat Fox said there's no rugby there. And I said, um, tell Pat Fox to jump off a, off, a, off, a, off a building in less polite words. And uh, uh, so that's somewhere, that's somewhere I went home anyway. I went down to my local mart, Carnew Mart. And a mart is like a scrum, basically. There's a ring, the cattle come into the ring, and the cattle leaders and the farmers are three deep. You know, and it's it's very close bodily contact, and some of it's social, and some of it's a bit. Um, but I stood into the ring 2011, and people went left and right, and I got to shake fellas' hands; they wouldn't shake my hand. And um, I went into the auctioneer around the back, a fellow called Arthur Quinn, who I know since I was six or seven, knows me well. I said, Arthur, what's going on? I'm getting a cold shoulder out here, and he, he rubbed his kind of cheek in his face for a second. And he said, Oh, what do you expect? You're over there in Chernobyl, coaching the rugby team, right? So, so my dad, my dad had been going into farms for a year, and and of course he said, Where's that young lad of yours now? And he was telling him I was in Chernobyl. Although to be honest, sometimes I felt the team I was coaching probably could have been in Chernobyl when we played badly. But uh, so yeah, it's. Um, He's still kind of like I said, I am in hurt and I am taking over the farm, but I'm so lucky in my life. Like, I've got such variety in my life, and my kids are settled in, in Dublin. Um, so, are you going to go back and I live am on the farm? Yeah, like, well, well, we'll have to do it differently because, like, I couldn't be there. I, 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 lo- I like farming, um, but I would have no interest in being a 24 7 farmer, if you get me. So, I'm going to be a gentleman farmer, maybe. Sorry, what about all the siblings? Is yeah, it- I know, but they're not. Look, they're not. Uh, I have three, three sisters and a brother. My brother's in Malta selling crypto uh, so <laughs> I think he is anyway he was uh, although I don't think the market's too good and then uh, my three sisters are um, they're around but they're not they're not farming uh, as such so um, yeah I have to do my green cert uh, which is basically your agricultural qualification so I'm under pressure to get that because you have to do it before you're 50 um, why? why does that? well if you inherit a farm um, you're, for your uh, for all your licensing and paperwork you're, you have to have this agricultural qualification so I should have done it years ago to be honest um, I kept putting it off but and uh, is your father near retirement yeah, age now? yeah he's 74 but like he hasn't slowed down at all you know what I mean but yeah he will have to retire at some stage um, but he's like he, he, he's uh, he's a workaholic he's, he's a workaholic so um, he, I haven't seen him slow down in actual fact I think since COVID he's got fresher COVID and having to be at home a lot actually aged him um, because for him for him his social network is being at a mart every day you know with people he's known for 20-30 years trying to buy cattle trying to sell cattle um, that keeps that's kept him unbelievably active mentally and, and physically and then uh, during COVID they were trying to buy online sorry the marts went online so um, but like, he's not great on technology so he's trying to buy a, a bunch of cattle like off his phone you know it didn't work out too well <laughs> But yeah, for all the things, the technological advances of that, just how important is it, the actual, the social aspect of life to your work that you actually meet people when you're doing your buying and selling? It's incredible. Like his life has been being at a mart or in a farmer's yard every day um, and having that social aspect. Because uh, like he doesn't, he's not a drinker. You know, he doesn't have, he doesn't go to the pub. He doesn't go to, uh, he might go to Galway races once a year, but like he doesn't go to a match on a Saturday. So his social thing is, is basically work, but like it's it, he doesn't know it as anything different. You know? How did you get so involved in sports? So if yeah, you had well, no interest, so basically, the problem was so I'm the eldest in my family of five, and when I was six, seven, eight, I was infatuated with uh, with lorries and, and marts, and my dad left school at, at eleven because he was the eldest of ten, um, because his father had a stroke, my grandfather, so uh, he wasn't edu- he didn't have an education, but didn't hold him back, and probably 
I was in a primary school with only eight kids in my class. So it's a very small rural school and there was no real tradition or aspiration to go to university in my in my locality it's just a, it's a rural it's changed now in Ireland but back then it wasn't really seen as 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 the the step for for people in our area and um I remember I, I was doing a bit of homework one night around eight o'clock I was I think it was in four class and a lorry came into the yard and I disappeared I think it was about midnight by the time I came back in and by the time I came back in my mother had convinced my father that I had to go send me to boarding school um, and not because my mom, my mom insisted that I didn't go home, stay at home, but she said if I don't go to college, to boarding school, I was going to basically have no choice because I'd just be distracted all the time, you know. And uh, so basically, I went to Newbridge College, and that's where I started to play rugby. And then obviously, I loved that, and I loved being in a bigger school. Um, and because you have to do three and a half hour study every night. I was okay at, uh, I did an okay leave insert and uh, um, yeah, I went from there, but there was no, there was like, my mum and dad would have been very happy for me to go home after my leave insert. You know, they just, just wanted me to have that choice myself, you know, and also to be fair, I'm slagging him off there, but he's backed me every step of the way, you know, um, but I, I, I would, I know for him, it'd be nice for him. He wants to hand it on over to someone in his family, if you know what I mean. Tell me about this new job that you've got though, an equestrian, because yeah. did you have horses on the no. farm? I've been getting so many slags, uh, like um, the best one was, now we know who's taking the horse to France, Bernard is, if, but you have to be a certain age to know that or whatever. Um, but no, I don't. I like horse racing. I like horse racing. But, but this like, is show no, jumping, no, 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 isn't no, no, it? No, 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 I'm just trying to make a link. No, they effectively... Um, so I am really interested in high performance and obviously I was lucky enough to be a player in a high performance environment uh, coached in top 14 and URC um, I did a thesis back in 2010 um, so when I retired I had an autobiography um, but I went back to college and did a master's in UCD and I did a thesis on the correlation between high performing behaviours in elite sport and business teams so I went travelling because uh, I'm not very academic so I didn't want to spend three months in the library I just thought I'd go and visit people and teams that I admired so I went to Toyota in Japan I went to the All Blacks obviously and I went to Sydney Swans Ty Kennelly was I just won the AFL. Uh, I went to Carlton because there was two Alpines there and Sean Og was in DCU with me, so he organised that. Uh, I went to Amazon Seattle, Google in San Fran, the IMG Tennis Academy in Florida, Dyson, James Dyson's a rugby fan, thank God. Hold on, hold on a second. Yeah. This just sounds like you decided to go on a world tour did, yeah, under the excuse of doing your Yeah, it was. Masters. Basically that. Like, um, I basically just said, look, at, uh, I've been locked in an environment, uh, thankfully, for... 15 years, different teams, Connacht, Sale Sharks, Leinster, Ireland. Um, and I had the privilege of being around people like Paul O'Connell and Johnny Sexton and Brian Driscoll, Ron O'Gara, etc. And, you know, Eddie O'Sullivan and, and um, Declan Kidney, Warren Gatland. But that was very much a rugby environment. And I wanted to see, and luckily I've been successful and unsuccessful and we had good cultures, bad cultures. And I wanted to, to see how other teams did it, you know. And I, I thought I was going into the business world. I wasn't really planning on going coaching. So I said, well, look, at if, if I go into the business world, um, having that experience at Dyson and Google and Toyota will stand to me, you know? And I didn't really know where I was going to go in that, um, but it was amazing. What did you get out of it? What things did you learn? Basically, strong leadership uh, from above. So, for example, Amazon. So, Jeff Bezos' big thing is and this goes all the way down through his company, is often at strategic meetings, the leader will speak last. You know, so how often, and I've been in the corporate world uh, since for three years, where, you know, you have a managerial meeting and uh, the CEO or the 
the head of head of that group will basically set the agenda, you know, and everyone else will be nodding dogs. So Amazon's big thing is that um, often the leaders will be the last to speak. They'll allow the floor to um, express their opinion and then they'll wrap it up really well, you know, and they'll get consensus. So um, that was it from them. Google obviously spent a huge amount of money on how to try and get uh, people to collaborate better, you know, in terms of the office setting, in terms of how how teams communicate and hierarchy. Um, James Dyson, phenomenal. Like, so James Dyson, um, his father was a classic teacher um, and he died when James Dyson was 12, but he was active. He was teaching in a, pri- in a public school, which is like a private school in Ireland, very expensive, I think about 40,000 a year. And James was never going to be going there, right? Um, but because his father died in active service, uh, the kids were given a scholarship there. So James Dyson went to this private school in England uh, had a pretty hard time because he wasn't for money um, got stuck into his uh, education went and did an engineering degree went to this company that um, invented uh, technology and machinery for the marine industry okay um, he basically designed a craft to take boats out of water um, and got a patent for it right so that was his first success he had this idea that he could invent a vacuum that didn't have a, a cylinder in it went to the CEO and the board they said look James stay in your lane we don't. We do things from marine. So he basically took a gamble, took a few quid out of the company, went into his back shed, uh, his shed in the, in the in the back of his garden, and started to try and make this prototype of um of a of a vacuum cylinder or a, a vacuumless Hoover. Uh, his wife got a second job after a while. They remortgaged the house. They took a loan from his wife's family. He got a second job, and five thousand one hundred and twenty six prototypes later, he he nails it. You know, so I, I couldn't understand the resilience to be under all that pressure. The reason he's the richest man in the UK at 20 billion is because he's totally private. He never took outside funding. He never sold uh, equity. And I, I, I was saying, to him, well, how could you, with all the pressure you're under, your wife getting a second job, the house remortgage, etc., and you had his track record, would you not have gone to the bank or gone to a, and split the, the risk? And he said, no. I said, I, um, I knew, I thought I could do it. And as long as I didn't double back on myself and do the same thing twice, I was always getting closer to it, uh, to getting it right. You know what I mean? So that resilience, I've never come across anybody else, I think it's the best example of resilience I've ever seen. Uh, but also it's, it was based around this belief that he could do it and then a clear plan. So little things like that, like people... How did you get to him? How did you manage um, to get to him? So he sponsors Bass and his... Uh, so basically he likes rugby. Uh, so I had a guy, Brian Redpath, uh, played for Scotland, coached him in sale. Uh, he he had played for Bath, and he made the connection. But like, and it, I get asked this all the time because when I do keynotes, people come up to me, uh, certain people come up to me and say, how can I get to visit wherever, Man United or Arsenal? Or yeah. Um, and it's, it, there's no real secret to it. You just got to try and find um, a person in contact, uh, I think. You know, a mutual a mutual contact who knows someone in there who will vouch for you and then be really polite and write a letter um, or write an email, um, maybe make a phone call and be persistent. Like, for example, in Japan, I actually thought I was going to be going to Honda, but I couldn't get in. You know what I mean? It was just I was able to find someone in my course had gone to do work experience in Toyota and they hooked me up. So you have to really go into your black book. LinkedIn is probably more, is better now, but the problem with LinkedIn now is there's, there's so much rubbish on it and people trying to sell you stuff that a lot of people don't, uh, they ignore messages. Um, but yeah, and once you get to one place, like obviously I had the Irish connection for Sydney Swans uh, and and Satan, and, and uh, Carlton with the two lads, the three lads. Then 
the All Blacks, Popey, Brent Pope hooked me up, you know, uh, to go to New Zealand to, to originally the Highlanders. And the New Zealanders were unbelievable. They, they would nearly send you, maybe they're trying to get rid of me, but they would actually make a phone call for you to go to the next place, you know, because they always have had this tradition of they're an island. They've always went overseas to try and learn. So um, they call it overseas experience, whatever. And like they would actively try and push their players or their coaches to go and have that experience abroad um, because they feel it'll help them later on. So they don't mind sharing. And I was like, well, why are you sharing all this stuff with, with everybody? And they were like, well, look, at, if you're only copying what we are doing, you're going to be behind us. We're already, we understand this really well because we've come up with it. It's our concept. And taking it from other places, but we're already thinking about how we evolve it. So we don't mind telling you what we're doing now because we're already planning on moving on. Which is why they were open to people like Ron Nagara totally. going out. Roy Keenos, yeah. I spent yeah, time that week. Um, the week uh, we, played, we played the All Blacks in Wellington and uh, Wellington's a small town and like Roy was over there doing his pro license um, that week. Yeah, no, they, they, they like, they're unbelievably open. And, and some people in New Zealand would say that that openness has cost them a little bit. That's the aura of the of the All Blacks. Um, there was a book called Legacy about about them, um, which caused murder. murder. Because effectively, they felt he was given access to the inner sanctum and uh, basically opened up too much. It's a great read, though. Good read, yeah. yeah, he's very very good guy, and he's he's gone around the world. I'd say ten times uh, telling the story of Legacy, um, but it's a very good book. But yeah, so that's the, and obviously they bounced back at this World Cup, got to a final. But there's certain people in New Zealand who feel that they were too open over the last ten years, and and that the they've given away too much. Did your wife go on this trip? With you? No, I was back and forth. So no, she didn't. She's very understanding. Like I wouldn't be anywhere only for like uh, she. She looks after the house. She does everything. I just go out and um, I ramble around the place <laughs> and meet people. So I'm, I'm very lucky. Yeah. Why did you not go into business after doing that? Well, I did. Well, I, well, I went to Grenoble then. So um, I got a chance to go coaching. I had chances to, or to play in France, uh, which I would have loved. But if you go to France as a player, you're you're written off for Ireland. So um, and I like I found it hard enough to get the nine caps. I did. So I, did, I didn't want to give. I, I wouldn't have been picked from France. Put it that way. So I stayed in Ireland, and luckily I was chasing something with Leinster, and we ended up winning that European Cup for the first one. So I've no regrets around that. But then there was a chance to go coach in France to Grenoble or Chernobyl, and um, uh, I thought what an experience it would be, and I'd do it for a year, and then the club club was a good club and we had a bit of momentum and I ended up staying for five years then I was coming home to get a job like I, I, I was finished with coaching like I'd overstayed my coaching career by four years why? because I didn't really like it's boring enough to be honest yeah like really? okay, there's two parts of it right one is one is um, you actually you, you don't have great stability for your family okay um, and your kids and again uh, some people think this is a positive but if I had to stay coaching maybe my kids might have had four different schools, okay, because they have to move, whatever, right? Um, two, you're, unless you become an Andy Farrell or Ron Nagara um, or uh, not Eddie Jones anymore, but Warren Gatland, you're probably not going to create enough wealth to to be able to be comfortable, right? Okay, that's the reality. There's like a load of coaches who are, who are coaching um, on, on salaries that maybe don't, give them the opportunities that they would like to have. Um, and then three, and probably most importantly, was it's, it's, quite, it's quite boring week on week 
look, looking at the same teams over and over again. So when I went to France first, it was phenomenal playing Toulouse this Saturday, in a, in, you know, in Toulouse, etc. But then when you played them for the tenth time, um, and there's only so many times, so much you can create differently in a week. Um, I think to inspire players. Yeah, I just, I just didn't find it challenging enough. I didn't find it. It's obviously challenging. <laughs> we weren't winning everything. I, I, I didn't master it by any manner of means. I don't, don't get me wrong. I, I found it. I didn't want to spend my whole life just being a rugby player or a rugby coach, to be honest. You know, I wanted to see if I could do other things. Um, and then Warren Gatlin rang me and he's like, look, he gave me my first contract, so I owe him something. And um, he was good to me uh, as a coach. And he basically said, look, at the Welsh Rugby Union bought the Dragons. We want to do what the Irish provinces have, four provinces beyond or four regions beyond by the WRU, give them money, support them. And I think if you come in here now, you're coming at the right time. There's going to be budget. There's going to be an increased budget. And so I went in under the pretense that okay, I'll have a year and a half or two years with Warren underneath him, and then uh, and try and get the Dragons up and going, up and running with support from the union. And then when we got there, it turned out that the way the uh, uh, governance and participation agreement was with the four regions, for every euro or pound they gave us, they had to give the others a pound as well. So um, effectively, the WRU didn't have the money to to actually give us any money. So um, I got out of there after about a, after a year and a bit and came home and got got a real job. Went and worked for Reuters, um, selling market data to the financial services in Ireland, the international banks. Uh, that went really well. And then I got headhunted by a company called Gartner uh, to head up there to sell into their financial services uh, sector and went full-time speaking and, and media uh, just over a year ago. Yeah. But tell us about the equestrian job. Yeah, sorry. So I got a, basically, about three months ago, I got approached. Uh, I did a podcast. Uh, sorry, I did a, Yeah, I did a, an interview with Anya Kerr for her show. She takes over the Sunday or the Saturday business show right. uh, for, for six weeks. Anya did one of the very first of these podcasts yeah, and, and she's terrific. She's woman. amazing. And uh, so it's funny how things work out. So I did a, I spoke at a conference in Croke Park with her about a year ago. And she was phenomenal. And uh, but she said to me afterwards, "Look, we do something again." Didn't hear anything for a year, and then next thing, she invited me out to her show one Saturday morning, and um, a fifteen-minute leadership hit. It's called Reignite, and I came out and I had a good few messages on my LinkedIn, um, not abuse, <laughs> positive messages saying, "Look, we'd love to talk to you." Blah, blah blah. And one of them was was Horseport Ireland, who were looking for a head of performance for the Olympics. Um, and I went to meet met the CEO, a fellow called Dennis Duggan. Um, he said, "Look, they're talking to three other candidates, but would I like to to pitch for it?" So, um, effectively, it's an unbelievable opportunity for me to try and bring. So, sorry, just. I was working for Gartner, I was working for Reuters, but I've also been working with people or companies like Airbnb, Porsche UK, Pfizer, uh, Aviva, with their leaders around high performance. Right? So I have, I've been in that space, but not in yeah. support. Um, and a lot of stuff around helping them with strategy, helping them with creating um, clear communication lines, etc. So this is a challenge, which for 12 months will get me back to Paris next summer, where I was for the World Cup. Uh, but a totally different uh, discipline, two totally different disciplines, and hopefully three. So, um, or, uh, so basically, at the moment, we've qualified an eventing team and a show jumping team um, for Paris, which is brilliant. We may qualify a dressage team, and hopefully, we'll qualify um, a Paris dressage uh, athlete or team. Uh, so, effectively, I could have four teams 
going to, to Paris under my uh, care. Uh, but And what's the job? What yeah, do you have to do? Effectively, each of those sports disciplines have a high-performance director. They're the Andy Farrell. Okay, they're the Stephen Kenny. They're the experts in their field. And you're the David Nukafora, are you? Yeah, I'm David Nukafora. But David Nukafora obviously had a rugby background. But uh, I, I, I don't need to have a rugby I just need to make sure that they have the plan. Okay, that's world class between now and Paris. Um, that every athlete and rider who's in, the, in that potential team um, understands the selection criteria understands their role. Um, also, that we give them the support that they need individually and collectively to perform in Paris. Um, and it's, it's incredibly exciting. So I'm, I'm going out to Clare tomorrow morning to meet our show jumping high performance director, a fellow called Michael Blake, and our, who's got our show jumpers to one in the world. It's very similar to rugby. Um, they're ranked one in the world at the moment. And we've got a lot of depth. Um, but the challenge is to get it down to, to five, five horses and riders who are on form um, and ready to, to perform in, in Paris. Likewise, for eventing, it's the same challenge. So effectively, I'm there as a go-between between the high-performance directors and their riders cause, uh, and uh, Horse Sport Ireland, support Horse Sport Ireland and Sport Ireland basically try and medal and get as many medals as we can in that sport so it's a it's but like I, I met an eventer yesterday um, he was in Kilkenny and like he is so driven to this is it'll be his fourth Olympics if he makes it um, so you're only really trying to trying to support them and, uh, and and guide them and, and, and it could be sports psychology it could be nutrition it could be um uh, with coaching, you know, access to a different coach who can help them get to a level. It depends on everyone's different. Everyone's individual. Every, everyone will have their own needs individually. And then as a team, we need to create that team ethos um, and, and clarity around how we're going to select. Like, for example, last week, it sounds like I'm name dropping here, but um, we're down in Dubai with Sexton for dinner and we got to, uh, Shane Lowry was in the hotel and got a chance to chat to him and he spoke about, you know, how for him and Rory, um, the Olympics is such a such a big thing. And uh, I remember hearing Rory saying that in Tokyo, um, he was in a playoff and he never fought as hard in his life to finish third because it, to finish third would have been an Olympic medal. Yeah. You know, so um, when you have people like McElroy and, and Larry who are top, top class in, a, in, 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 a, in, a, in the golf and the golf game provides so many big opportunities through majors, through Ryder Cups, and hearing how passionate they are about the Olympics, um, and I had never really, never, obviously, I watch Olympics all the time, but I didn't. I, I, I sometimes was ignorant to the sacrifice that uh, athletes are putting in to try and get to Olympics, try and be an Olympian, and obviously to win. So, um, if I can add any value there, um, it, uh, it'll be um, it'll be a brilliant, a brilliant thing to do. Given that you retired, I think about twelve years now at this stage, how do you think? Our preparation and our approach to sport in Ireland has changed even from the time when you were playing. Uh, it's, um, it's far, far better. You know, I think um, I think there's been great things done. I think um, I think a lot of other countries are coming here. I, I'll give you an example. So um, a physio I had in Sale Sharks uh, back in the day when I played there in 2000 and 2001, I met him at, a, at an event recently and now he works for British Rowing. And he was saying to me, do you ever hear a place called Skip Reen? I said, yeah. yeah. He, goes, uh, he goes, yeah. He said, our, our high performance director, our coach, um, was pissed off basically seeing these lads from Irish rowing beat them underwater because 
you know, in my day, British rowing was was it was one of the least, and uh, and they still are. Um, and basically, apparently, he got a heli- he got a flight to Dublin Airport, rented a car, drove to Skib, whatever it is, uh, five and a half hours. Asked where the rowing club was. He was just told, given directions, and he expected to see this like high performance facility. You know what I mean? Because that's what people think high performance is all about. You go out to Abbottstown, and we have that now. We have that, but Skibbereen basically is like a shed. You know what I mean? And the way the weights are welded together. But there's a great book about it called Something in the Water. Um, but it was started by a guy called uh, I think it's Dominic Casey who 25, 20, 30 years ago started this culture of training hard competition um, uh, good coaching and it's now built into this mecca of high performance which is built around I suppose people and and the legacy of the fellows who have gone before and obviously the current generation and youngsters coming through and then you go to Abbottstown you see this facility that has everything you go to the IRFU you know the GA are putting a huge amount of um, money into coach development soccer the same so it's uh, in terms of facilities we're miles ahead but also I think in terms of joined up thinking and planning um, our sport is uh, and it has to be because the rest of the world are flying ahead as well So what then did you make of the people who were critical of the Irish team for in the Rugby World Cup for not getting past the quarter final? Uh, I think I think if you understand elite sport or business you understand that you're always not going to get it your own way just because you want to um, and uh, you know like I think the throw stones they, they underperformed slightly against New Zealand and they come up against New Zealand team who were very good as well right? who, who played their best back. game of the World Cup by a mile and that's that's always the challenge in in, uh, in, in, in World Cups is to, is to peak at the right time and the All Blacks very close to winning in the end. Um, but arguably peaked against us, yeah, which might have gone against them in the final. 100%, exactly. So, uh, but they needed to because Ireland were that, were that, were that level of team. Um, so no, I, 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 I was fast, I'm fascinated by this and I, I'm not sure I have that, had that clarity when I played. But like, I, I, I would have spoken to people like Gary Ringrose, Johnny Sexton, um, over the course of the last year and I couldn't believe that they said that we understand that it'll come down to a bounce of a ball, right? Because I, my thing was, well, surely as a, as, a, as a professional player, you train your ass off, you have a plan, and you believe if you follow that to the last degree, you'll win, right? Okay, that's the way I would have taught, right? But they actually, they're right. They're right. Like, uh, And it sounds like it's um, it's an, it's a, an excuse or whatever, but they actually realise that most of those top four teams in the world both teams could lay it all out there and it would come down to a refereeing decision or a bounce of a ball. And even if you think about the two chips that New Zealand put over the top against us to bounce back to them in the World Cup final, they put one over and it bounced to the right and, and the box escaped. So that's that's the reality of, of, of elite sport is there's, we, no one has a divine right to do anything. Um, and unfortunately, the, uh, we didn't get past the quarter final. But speaking to some of the lads, like... Getting quite, like the public are caught up on getting past the quarter final, but they went there to win it. So if they had got to the final and lost, it was going to be the same level of dejection, you know. Uh, the only difference is, is that for the next generation, the next crop in four years' time are going to have to go listen to all that bullshit about, you know, is there a quarter final? Like that, I think that would have been the only thing they could look back on and said, well, we've passed that barrier for the next generation. But realistically, getting to a final made no difference to them. I did an event with Rog in Cork recently, just about the week after the World Cup, after we went out, or two weeks afterwards. And France had gone out as well. And he made a rather, I thought it was a surprising statement, that he was in some respects happy that the players had, that his players had lost, 
rather than having to take them back in as World Cup winners because he didn't think he would be able to refocus them had they won. So for the provinces, for Leinster, Munster and Connacht and Ulster and for the Irish team going into the Six Nations, is it in some respects better, strangely? Uh, yeah, look, I can understand Roger's point of view there, but I, I, I don't think we can... I should be in PR if I could twist it that was better for us that uh, that we lost. Um, but you know, for sure, look, there's going to be there's going to be renewed desire and hunger there, and you know, the Six Nations now um, is a is a great opportunity to bounce back. Yeah, how much does it matter? Because there are people talking about you know, has the Six Nations been devalued by the World Cup, and then this new tournament that's coming yeah. in as well is that going to devalue the World Cup and the Six Nations in that we'd have too many competitions? Yeah, I'm not sure about the new competition, but I, I do think the Six Nations is um, is worth winning. You know, it's phenomenal, and and we all feel a little bit down at the moment. But once that kicks in, and we go to Marseille to play France, and we're up and running, I think. Um, I think we realise that it's it's worth winning. Uh, I don't think us winning a Six Nations last year cost us winning a World Cup I think it was a good thing for us to, to have done that so um, the new competition may devalue the World Cup a little bit um, but it's still going to be something that teams are going to focus on for four years the World Cup itself you know so Farrell when he picks the squad in in in, uh, in January he'd be very focused on trying to win the World or the, the Six Nations yeah, does, does he keep all the same players or you know there is this argument as well that you have to use this World Cup cycle to blood players but is Irish rugby still in the sense of you just go out to put the best team to win every game and then if players are good enough, they'll find their way through? Yeah, I think so. I think for the, for the year of the World Cup, like I think it'll be June when they go to South Africa, that he may start to, to look at the next cycle as such. But I think um, you've got lads like Peter Manny and, and Conor Murray, etc., who are very much part of this World Cup campaign and should be part of the Six Nations campaign. But it's, it's then the summer tour, do you give them a summer off? And like, also we've we kind of write off players very quickly in Ireland. You look at the box, and someone like Dean Fury who ended up playing seventy eight minutes or seventy three minutes or seventy seven minutes in a in a World Cup final out, out of position. You know what I mean? And he's had a like he was in Grenoble for a while. He was in Leon. Um, he went off, left South African rugby because he didn't. He was going to be become a Springbok, but managed to keep getting better and produce. So, you know, obviously we had Johnny Sexton at the World Cup 30, 37, but in general. We're always looking to exit players, um, I think, maybe too quickly. What are your ambitions? Obviously, um, you've got the medals, uh, at the Olympics for next year, so you're not thinking beyond that, no, are you? I'm not, because it's, it's a 12-month contract. I don't know if, if, if I'm going to like this. I don't know if they're going to like me. I think I will. I think I, think I will love it. I've already started it. Um, and, and then, is that uh, do I stay in Horse Sport Ireland? Um, do I go into another sport? Um, or do I just... come? pull out of it and do what I was doing until three weeks ago which was a mixture of media and a mixture of, of keynote speaking um, and, and running workshops around high performance so like I'm not 100% sure I'm not really worried I think if I just keep working really hard and add value um, the phone will keep ringing Bernard Jackman it's been great talking to you thank you and that's it for today. My thanks again to Strategic Power Connects for its support and, of course, most especially to Bernard Jackman for spending the time for talking to us about his career in rugby, but also about his new job involved in the equestrian industry and preparing, hopefully, for Olympic success. So until the next time, by the way, recommend this to a friend, please, if you liked it. Let them know the link on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever it is you get your podcasts, on the Go Loud app as well. And then hopefully they can find many other 
of these interviews on Magnified to enjoy. So until the next time, thank you. Goal Out presents Magnified with Matt Cooper. Sponsored by Strategic Power Connect. Renewable energy designed to suit your business needs. Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect. Go loud. Sounds better with us.